creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. It happens every year. The temperatures start to drop a bit, then the kids go back to school, the leaves start changing, and the fall season is in the air. You start to see Halloween decorations popping up all around town. And then come the reports. We've got a Halloween candy warning tonight. We have a warning for parents. Trick or treat turned into a real light nightmare. Police in Pennsylvania say someone's putting needles inside candy. Halloween candy was laced with drugs. She found a small metal blade. The Florida Sheriff's Association is warning parents about pot candy. Time and time again, police across our state have found sick individuals preying on our children. Sounds scary, right? And we've heard it all before. Razor blades and apples, cyanide and pixie sticks, and now it's marijuana-infused candy that could end up in your child's trick-or-treat bag. Hospitals even offer to x-ray candy to make sure it's safe. But in the midst of all the warnings, where are the reports of injuries caused by tainted Halloween candy? Are razor blades and drug-laced candy a real threat? Today on Culture Click, we talk to Craig Upright, Associate Professor of Sociology at Winona State University, about stories of tainted Halloween candy. Just how did these stories come to be, and is there any truth to these trick-or-treat tales of terror? I'm Bill Stoneberg with Professor Craig Upright on today's Halloween edition of Culture Click. Uh, how are you doing today, Craig? I'm doing great. Uh, how, how are you? I'm doing good, good, very good as well. Thank you, and uh, it's great to have you on the show. Like we were talking a little bit earlier, um, um, I was in some of your classes as a student here at Winona State, so uh, uh, this is kind of interesting uh, getting to talk again. So, um, you know, well, I'm really glad that we were able to re- reconnect after so many years. Definitely, definitely. And uh, you had sent me um, uh, an article here. The razor blade and the apple, the social construction of urban legends. And and this is exactly what, you know, um, I had reached out to you wanting to talk about this topic. And reading through the article was pretty interesting. Uh, it dates back to, well, the article was published in what, 1985? Is that correct? That's correct. I believe so. And, uh, yes, it was written by Joel Best, who is a professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware. Okay. And he wrote that article in 85 with one of his graduate students. Uh, it, it's really an excellent article that I use when I teach uh, our social problems class at Monona State University okay. uh, because it really does help uh, create the idea of this idea of uh, constructing social problems. Ah. And, and it, it, it's a fascinating study. Uh, even though it's several decades old now, it's one that still has a lot of relevance. Yeah, um, and, and and in some ways, what I'm doing today is I'm standing in for Joel Best. Uh, he he is deluged with requests for interviews every year, right around October. It seems <laughs> 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 people are are revisiting that article. And for anyone who's interested, uh, after hearing uh, our talk, uh, you can go to joelbest.net, and he updates. Uh, uh, his his website every year with more stories about Halloween statism. Oh, cool. Great, great. Um, so, in the article dates back to, it takes information from like 1958 to 1984 and uh, 
it said there was, I'm just going to kind of jump into a couple facts here that we can talk about, but it says that there were 76 incidents reported in total, and we're talking about tainted Halloween candy, you know, razor blades and apples, pins and needles, things like that, uh, poison mm-hmm. perhaps. Uh, but it said 76 instances total, um, and that's a span of what? That's uh, 60, 24, 26 years. Um, mm-hmm. Some people might say that that's cause to be worried right there, that there's 76 incidents but uh, the article, you know, kind of as you read through it, you know, it, it describes us as an urgent urban legend in that uh, there's that it's really not as prominent as an issue as we think. Uh, how should people re- interpret that? You know, if there are urban legends kind of based in reality all the time, is there something that happened and it's exaggerated or, you know, should we be worried, I guess, basically is what I'm thinking. Well, Certainly there are instances of Halloween candy, Halloween candy being painted, um, and, and even beyond Halloween, you know, there are, are, are lots of individuals out there that are interested in doing harm to others. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether, whether painted Halloween candy is a cause for great concern, uh, that's really what, what Joel Bess is trying to bring out. So if we just do some rough math, you know, let's let's say 76 instances over a 25-year period. Mm-hmm. That's three per year. Right. Now, now, what we know is that there's lots of stuff going on all the time, and if, if there were only three incidents of, of painted Halloween candy across the entire nation, mm-hmm. uh, year after year after year, that, that really doesn't pose a great threat for any individual in any one community. Uh, another interesting thing that Beth uh, does in, in his original research is actually traces what what was going on with those 76 reported cases. And in, in many of them, it was uh, a concern about tainted candy, but nothing actually came of it. Uh, and, and there was one celebrated case where, yes, a child did die from... I believe it was a cyanide-laced apple or piece of candy, uh, but it turned out that that was given to him by his father, right. and the father kind of used the, uh, the the fear of tainted Halloween candy to try to do something that he wanted to do anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so in terms of an actual threat to individuals, uh, given the the, the vast number of people who are going out and getting candy and consuming candy and the relatively small number of actual incidents, no. I, I think that Beth makes a pretty strong case that this is an urban legend. Uh, and and really, it's that subtitle of his article, The Social Construction of Urban Legends, I think that that's what makes this really kind of fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it just, you know, and you mentioned something there too about some of the reports uh, being just a report of, you know, maybe nothing really happened. They just said, oh, I think maybe something was in the candy, you know, maybe something of that nature. Is that how this stuff works? Does it like, it seems like the fear of the legend itself created more reports or more, you know, more people talking about it, more people saying, oh, I found something in my candy. You know, does it just kind of snowball like that, then? I think that that's a, a large part of it. You, you, I don't know if you ever played the, the game Telephone, 
Mm, yeah. Uh, when, when you were young, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you get a group of people in a circle and one person whispers something to somebody else and then they have to repeat it. And then at the end, you you find out that that story changed dramatically as, as, as it went from one person to the next. Right. Um, this is one problem with with trying to give statistics say, in, in, in a new setting. It is that people oftentimes lose the nuance of what the statistics might be. Uh, this, one of my favorite examples um, uh, from the past, news stations used to do a lot of, uh, tell us, how do you feel about this particular issue? You know, text, you know, this number, if you agree, text this number, if you disagree. Um, I, you know the sort of thing that, that they do. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the news show, they'll say, well, this is not a scientific sample, of course. You know, you know, but but based on people who wrote in, seventy five percent think blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Well, the news station is covering itself by saying this is not a scientific poll. But then somebody who hears that and then repeats it to somebody else, they'll lose that. Yeah, and they'll say seventy five percent of the population believes this, oh, and then perhaps you know the number will change. You know, the You know. That's what often happens with some of these stories of urban legends, is that there is some factual basis, uh, but then as it gets repeated and, and passed on, uh, the story changes. Uh, here's an exa- I actually saw an article in the Washington Post uh, just last week where they were able to talk to Joel Dust and, and, <laughs> and do this kind of same annual story about is Halloween candy actually tainted? Should we be scared of this or not? Right. Um, and and this, this article references a contemporary uh, concern. The police in uh, Jonestown, Pennsylvania, uh. was, was warning people that drug-laced edibles are packaged like regular candy, and they might be hard to distinguish from the real candy. Right. And they're urging parents to check their candy, which parents should be doing anyway. Sure, yeah. Now, now in that post, the police say that they don't know that this has actually happened. You know, they're talking about this as a possibility. Right. But then it gets it gets translated, you know, passed along the internet as this is what is going on. Right. So all of that nuance uh, gets kind of bleached out, and things get presented as fact. Wow. Yeah, the game of telephone. That's a, that's a really good analogy because I. Yeah, I, I heard that uh, report of the Pennsylvania, uh, the town of Pennsylvania, where the police reported that. And uh, uh, some, you know, some of the things I've heard said about it were, were kind of obvious, like, because they said it's hard to distinguish between real candy and, like, an edible that contains THC or something. Um, but every picture I've seen online of an edible that contains THC says it all over the package like a big warning you know <laughs> so so i don't i don't know where they get that from and you know it's it's kind of interesting how the reports change as people tell them and pass them on um <laughs> you know when, when you take a look at, at, at some of these articles and just think about them a little bit there, there was one headline you know based on that Johnson, Pennsylvania story uh that said police warn parents after finding halloween candy laced with thc that looks harmless Oh, wow. Now, that's not what the police were saying. Right. They, they weren't saying they found Halloween candy. They right. were finding candy, but it, they didn't know that whether that was intended to be distributed for Halloween or not. 
Right. And really, someone who is into THC-laced candy, they probably want to consume that themselves. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's kind of, that's kind of an expensive prank to be That's the other you know, thing I'm, 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 many, I'm many years removed from the drug culture, but I don't think that that's how it works. Right, right. Yeah, that's a big argument I've seen online is people are like, oh, that's way too expensive for people. People aren't going to hand that out, you know. Mm-hmm. So, But uh, it's interesting, though, you know, and maybe that's similar to what happened. Uh, the article we were talking about earlier, The Razor Blade and the Apple by Joel Best, um, uh, there was a surge of reports because the reports are just kind of spread out maybe one a year, if that, you know. Um, and then there's some mm-hmm. little spikes, and in, in 1970 and 71, and then in 1982, there was also a spike, but there was there was an incident then with the what they call the Tylenol murders, and I vaguely remember this ba- happening back then. But uh, uh, that some people were poisoned from some Tylenol, and I don't know if that ever got solved or anything. But uh, they, they, they never actually found the culprit of that, and and there we truly did have a fatalist mm-hmm. uh, who was taking Tylenol bottles and then injecting I don't know. What, Cyanide, you know, some some poison, and then putting them back on the store shelf. Oh wow! Yeah. And so random people would be picking this up from their Walgreens, you know, from their pharmacy, and then they they actually did die, and then so several people did die, and then that was a big fear because because most crime that takes place in America, and and I'm guessing this is true throughout most uh, developed countries, most crime that takes place happens with where the victim actually knows the perpetrator. Okay, sure. So, so most murders are taking place with people that know each other. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there, there is some, there's some personal reason why this murder is happening. Right. So it, it's a relatively small number of murders that are random, but those are the ones that are really scary because ah, it could happen to us to without you, you know, without me doing anything wrong. Right. And so that that smaller number of cases is oftentimes going to be blown up uh, to be the bigger fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you know, well, and it seems like I mean, since there was a real, you know, incident happening like that, that the uh, the kind of the trick or treat urban legend just kind of picked up steam because of that because that's it fits right in you know i mean i can see how people could easily be scared of that then you know um, absolutely and, 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 and i think that in that year you know in those early 80s uh there were a number of communities that 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 were so freaked out that they actually canceled halloween oh wow you know and i wonder about that too like um you know we x-ray candy stuff like that uh you know, trick-or-treating has kind of moved from Halloween night to, like, Halloween afternoon, sometimes the day before, the weekend before or after. You know, do you think that uh, that the legend detracts? I mean, because we talked, I don't know if we mentioned this, but uh, uh, I did read another report, too. There was something in USA Today that had, that they mentioned that car accidents or getting hit by a car is much more common, you know? I mean, do you think that we're mm-hmm. detracting? You know, when we pass along these urban legends and think about them and talk about them a lot, do you think we're detracting from real dangers out there? Or I don't want to say that it's not a real danger, but that, you know, something that is more likely to happen, you know? Do you think we're well, detracting I from think that? that that's, I, I think that that's a fairly common phenomenon. Okay. Uh, that, that, that people, there's lots of reasons to be scared in the world. 
and what people would like is a little bit more control over their lives. Mm. And, you know, is there something that I can do to reduce the risk to me or to my children? Right. And you can't do a whole lot about some of the, the random accidents that might be taking place. Certainly, if there's a lot of cars that are speeding down your street, what are you going to do? You're going to want to put up some stop signs. You know, you're going to want to have more police enforcement of, of that. But accidents happen all the time. But something like Halloween candy, you know, I'm making the choice to send my children out and, and go knock on strangers' doors and get candy. <laughs> I can have some control over that, about oh, okay. whether sure. I allow my children to do that at all. You know, perhaps I'm going to be monitoring where my children are, are going. I don't have kids myself, um, uh, but I, I love passing out candy at Halloween. And what I've noticed over the years is there are a lot more parents either standing on the sidewalk, you know, taking their kids around the neighborhood, or sometimes they are dressed up in costume and they come and they get their own candy, too. Right. So, so parents can have a little bit more measure of control about where the candy is coming from, and, of course, they should be inspecting it, you know, after after the haul is laid out on the kitchen table. Mm-hmm. Uh, people would like to have a little bit more control over their lives. And so they oftentimes will fixate on issues where they have some control, even though some of these non-controllable events are actually greater risk. Okay, okay. But since you can exert control, you can you feel like you can do something about it then, huh? Yeah. And, you know, if that makes you feel better about going out for Halloween, and, you know, ultimately if that gives you a little stronger connection with your kids, and you're paying more attention, I don't see that as a bad thing. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point, you know? Kind of like if it makes you feel better, if it, you know, then go ahead and do it anyway, you know? As long as mm-hmm. it's not hurting anyone. So, yeah, for sure. You I, know, think one, I think one of the interesting things about Joel Beth's article, though, is that he describes uh, urban legends as being something that has always been with us, okay. that will always be around, and that urban legends serve a purpose in society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and so we, we can try to eliminate risks, you know, but from a sociologist standpoint, it's interesting to see how these sorts of stories do come up year after year. And and, and that's what, what Joel Betts is really trying to explore is how, how urban legends kind of stay just a little bit under the radar of an actual social problem that has to be addressed. Here's a, a little thought experiment. Imagine mm. that Halloween didn't exist. Okay. And I wanted to propose a new cultural tradition. And I'm going to suggest that children, one day a year, should walk around a stranger's (laughs) houses and beg for candy. (laughs) I think that people would be very suspect of me proposing that. Probably, yeah. Wow. But that's the situation that we have. and, And people are generally okay with it because it's part of the culture, it's part of tradition. Mm-hmm. You, you know, parents have generally fond memories of themselves going out at Halloween and getting a bunch of candy. Right. And they want their children to share that experience as well. Of course they want it to be safe, but one thing that Beth is pointing out is that there's lots of social strains uh, around us all the time, not just around Halloween. Uh, that, that people are very concerned about threats to children. Mm-hmm. And they have been forever. Right. You know, people are 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 fearful of crime, and they have been forever. Mm-hmm. 
And there is also a tendency to mistrust others, you know, especially strangers. Mm-hmm. And, and so in some ways, this Halloween candy scare is just perfect to encapsulate all of those strains into this one event. And the reason that you know that it isn't truly a social problem is that on November 1st, the issue just dies. Ah, right. You, you know, it, there isn't a, a big push for legislation to ban, you know, passing out of candy, you know, or, right. or to do all this. You know, by the time that, you know, you're moving towards Thanksgiving and the winter holidays, the scare about Halloween candy has totally faded into the background. Yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? Wow. I didn't, I didn't think if about that. If it really was a problem, if it really was a social problem, we'd be doing something about it. Right, right. Well, people would be outraged, you know, even mm-hmm. the day after Halloween, not just before, mm-hmm. yeah. And here's one last thing that I, that I get from Joel Best's article that he doesn't really highlight as much. Uh-huh. Um, I think that one of the reasons that urban legends persist is that people kind of like to be scared. Yeah. You know, they they kind of like it, to get freaked out a little bit, but they like to do so within a safe space. Mm, okay. So, you know, we go to scary movies, you know, but we watch them in theaters, you know, surrounded by other people who are experiencing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we watch all sorts of gory television shows, but we do it in the comfort of our own home, and usually we're doing that with other people around us. Right. You know, kind of, kind of the quintessential, like, sitting around a campfire telling scary stories, you know, we kind of like that, that sense of the unexpected, but within a relatively safe environment. And it's when those environments get transgressed, that's when the real scare happens. You know, when when we have a mass shooting in a theater, mm-hmm. okay, now it's real. Right. You know, and, and one of the biggest tropes uh, of, of a scary movie is you have a bunch of people sitting around campfire telling stories and then something bad happens to them. You know, mm-hmm. that safe space gets violated. Ah, wow. But, but, but we do like these these stories of people breaking norms, you know, of deviance. We like to share them. It's one reason that they so easily go viral on email, you know, chain chain notes that get sent around or, or on Facebook, et, et, et cetera. We like to share these, these scary stories that ultimately aren't that scary. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's interesting, the sharing of these stories, because, uh, you know, when I was kind of I was kind of reading some different articles and preparation for this. And uh, there are a lot of news stories out there. In fact, I found more stories about this article that we're talking about and the fact that this is an urban legend than there are about reports of it happening. You know, so (laughs) so it's it's kind of like, yeah, I guess we do enjoy um passing this along kind of you know it's it's kind of interesting it's kind of weird uh uh and then there's another aspect of that where the media you know some people might blame the media for spreading the idea but like i said i think there were more reports on it about being an urban legend than there were reports on it actually happening so you know mm-hmm. i don't think we can blame the media for it so no and, and getting back to you know something we've talked about earlier, these stories and these reports, you know, on the annual scare uh, interviews, you know, that, that are going on, they can serve a function in society as well. And, and if it's just a reminder on an annual basis, hey, pay attention to your kids, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, and if you're sitting in a stranger's house, maybe you should have 
a little bit more oversight of that. And yeah, check their candy. None of that. None of those are bad messages uh, to be sending. Right. And if that's one of the purposes of you know revising this this urban legend year after year, no, well, maybe that's a good thing. Right. Okay, I like that. I like that. So, like you said, those are good things, you know. Um, spend time with your kids, watch what they're doing, you know, know what they're doing. Um, all good stuff. So, And we like being scared by the story. So maybe the urban legend is kind of a good thing, kind of a fun hell. Maybe that's part of a Halloween tradition now, huh? Uh, yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. You know, <laughs> so long as it doesn't uh, result in... And people going out with pitchforks, you know, and burning down somebody's house because they have been deemed as, you know, a, a, a threat to all the other children. Right. You, you know, urban legends can take an ugly turn. Yeah. You know, but it all depends on how people respond to it. Right, right. Well, it seems like a lot of people are... Uh talking about this as an urban legend so hopefully no one's running around out there with pitchforks um pointing fingers no, we somebody. haven't seen those stories out there. <laughs> yeah so hopefully that's not happening uh, maybe we just started a new urban legend i don't know <laughs> so uh craig is there are there any other good resources that you could recommend people who want to just kind of take a look at urban legends and how they work and uh why they persist uh i, I will repeat the website that i mentioned earlier it's joelbeth.net Okay. Um, and also, notes.com. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a, that's one of my go-to sites for what are some of the contemporary urban legends that are out there. And there are some wonderful stories uh, that, uh, if you repeat it as if it's true, it will shock people. And then when you say, well... I have no reason to think that this is actually true, but uh, there's great stories about. I'll, I'll just. Do we have time for me to tell you two? Oh yeah, my favorites? yeah, for sure. Okay. for sure. Let's hear them. Uh, here's my favorite well, one. Uh, this happened to a friend of mine, and all of these always happen to a friend of yours, right? Right, right. Uh, uh, that way, it's uh, someone you know, right? It's someone. It, it uh, really happened, right? Yeah. Uh, went to a mall and, and bought some of those. Uh, famous famous chocolate chip cookies. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? You know, so there's that group mm-hmm. and sat down uh, on a bench and, and someone else sat down next to them and, and she reached in and she, she had a cookie and this person sitting next to her looked, looked at her and reached into the bag and took a cookie out and ate it himself. <laughs> and she was in dance, and, and so she goes and gets another cookie and, and the person sitting next to her smiles and and, and reached in and took another cookie from the bag. And they did this all the way through. And, and finally, this, uh, this, this uh, person uh, sitting next to her said, you know what, you should have the rest. <laughs> and he got up and walked away. And she was just so intense, you know, the nerve. Right. And, and so she's getting her stuff together. And do you know where this is going? No, no, I don't. As she's putting together her bag, she looked and on the left side of the bench, rather than the right, was her unopened bag of famous, famous chocolate chip Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> it's a great story. I okay, love it. And, and, you know, not on the level of razor blades and apples, but uh, this thing. And, and again, these things get passed around over and over again. Right, right. Oh, fun. I love it. I love it. Well, you know, it's something uh, a little different than the traditional ghost story, you know. 
And since it's plausible, maybe maybe it happened, right? <laughs> they have to be just plausible enough uh, that you believe them for a while, right? And, you know, and, and and that's the old tradition, you know, and that's that's kind of the wonderful thing about Halloween: the scary stories that could be true, but probably aren't. Right, right. <laughs> well, let's hope most of them aren't because they're scary. So. <laughs> All right, great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Craig. Really appreciate it. Um, and it was a great, pleasure. Yeah, it was great talking to you. So, uh, yeah, I've been here with Craig Upright. He's an associate professor of sociology here at Winona State University. And uh, like I said, uh, thanks, Craig, for joining us. I, I love this topic. I, I think it's just fun, super fun. Sounds so. great. <laughs> All right. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks again to Professor Craig Upright for joining us today on Culture Click. To learn more about urban legends or to read the article, The Razorblade and the Apple, The Social Construction of Urban Legends by Joel Best, go to joelbest.net. To keep up on all things Winona and the surrounding area, tune into Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Bill Stoneberg, and we've just heard from Craig Upright, Associate Professor of Sociology at Winona State University on Culture Click. And from everyone at KQL, we hope you have a safe and happy Halloween. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click.
is close at hand. Creatures crawl in search of blood to terrorize your neighborhood. And whosoever shall be found without the soul for getting down must stand and face the hounds of hell and rot inside a corpse's shell. Interested in all things Winona and the surrounding area? Find podcasts of Culture Click and all your favorite KQAL shows at kqal.org. Culture Click is made possible by a grant from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. <laughs>